Good morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin. If you could find your seats. We've come to lesson two in our study through this little book by J.C. Ryle, A Call to Prayer. Uh, Today we will be considering pages 14 through 30. I think I'll take the same approach I did last week, which is to highlight the the main points and to read through large sections with you. Um, I know that some of you probably read ahead of time. I hope this isn't too redundant. Um, Repetition is good though, isn't it? (laughs) And so we will um, just kind of move our way through this section and, and have some Uh, discussion as we go. Let's begin with a word of prayer. O great God in heaven, we do praise you and we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the Lord's Day. Um, Each and every Sunday when I come here, I am reminded of of what a blessing it is to have this day of rest, to have this day to assemble together and to be refreshed. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us to uh, fix our minds on the truth of your word, help us to open our hearts to you. Uh, Lord, help us to move on from this place when it is time uh, with the intent to obey you in all things. Uh, But God, today we come to worship. Uh, That is our primary purpose. And so help us to worship you, O God, even in this time. As we consider your word, may we do it um, with thankfulness in our hearts. And may we give you all glory, honor, and praise. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You have a little basic outline here. Um, The major... Theme of this first section of Ryle's book uh, can be described by the question, Do you pray? Uh, here, Ryle is asking us over and over again, Do you pray? And then there are a number of subpoints, uh, seven in total. Last week we looked at the question, or at least the statement, I ask whether you pray because prayer is absolutely needful to a man's salvation. Uh, the point made there by Ryle was that. You can't really be a Christian without calling out to God. Um, That really does begin the Christian life when we call out to God in prayer and confess our sins to Him and ask Him to forgive us of our sins. Of course, that profession of faith is properly expressed in public through the waters of baptism and it will result in joining oneself to the church, etc. Uh, But At the very beginning, when God gives us the gift of faith, what do we do except call out to the Lord? We call upon the name of the Lord and ask Him to forgive us and to save us and to lead us and guide us from that day forward as our Lord. Uh, The second question posed by Ryle is, I ask again whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. Uh, So Christians will pray. We do not naturally pray because of our sin. Uh, We might pray in times of crisis, we might call out to the Lord, yes, but uh, those who are dead in their sins do not commune with God in prayer. But those who have been made alive by the Word and Spirit, who have God as Father, they are going to have this impulse to cry out to Him, Abba Father is our cry. And, And so this is one of the surest marks of a true Christian, Ryle says. And then thirdly, we considered this question, I ask whether you pray. Because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. Uh, Ryle was writing quite a long time ago, but this was his observation that there are many who are religious in an external way. They might be very much devoted to uh, attend public worship. He talked about how there were many churches and they all seemed to be full. I I don't even think that's true in our day and age, sadly. Um, But in his day it was true. But he was concerned that it was a mere external form of religion and not 
a heart form of religion characterized by private prayer. And so we move on now in this section, and uh, there are four more questions. I ask whether you pray because, etc., etc., and so we'll consider each one of those uh, together now. On page 14, we read, I ask whether you pray because prayer is an act in religion to which there is great encouragement. And when I first read that, I didn't quite understand. It became clear what he meant as, as I read on, though. Uh, he is not saying that there is encouragement in prayer. Uh, there is encouragement in prayer, though. Of course, that is true. But here Ryle is saying that there is a lot of encouragement found in the Scriptures. Uh, there are good reasons given to pray. I think that is the point that he makes here. <clears throat> on page 15, the very top we read, There is everything on God's part to make prayer easy, if men will only attempt it. All things are ready on His side. Every objection is anticipated. Every difficulty is provided for. The, crooks, the crooked places are made straight and the rough places are made smooth. There is no excuse left for the prayerless man. God has removed every obstacle and has made the way for us to come to Him in prayer. I continue to quote Ryle, There is a way by which any man, however sinful and unworthy, may draw near to God the Father. Jesus Christ has opened that way by the sacrifice He made for us upon the cross. The holiness and justice of God need not frighten sinners and keep them back. Only let them cry to God in the name of Jesus. Only let them plead the atoning blood of Jesus, and they shall find God upon a throne of grace, willing and ready to hear. The name of Jesus is a never-failing passport for our prayers. In that name a man may draw near to God with boldness and ask with confidence. God has engaged to hear him. Think of this. Is, this, is not this encouragement, he says. Is not this encouragement, the fact that Christ has opened up the way and we may come to the Father in Jesus' name. You know this. When we pray in Jesus' name, um, it is not mere tradition. Uh, neither is it a magical in incantation. You know, by saying the name Jesus, you know, God, that will make our prayers effective. But when we say, in Jesus' name, Amen, traditionally, it means we are coming to the Father through Christ the Son. We, we are viewing Him as our mediator, as the one who has opened up the way to the Father for us. And so we come in His name. Uh, we come um, trusting in His person and in His work. I'll continue to quote Ryle. I'm going to have to decide how much to quote from him in each one of these sections, kind of on, the fly, on a fly. Uh, there is an advocate and intercessor always waiting to present the prayers of those who come to God through him. That advocate is Jesus Christ. He mingles our prayers with the incense of his own almighty intercession. So mingled, they go up as a sweet savor before the throne of God. Poor as they are in themselves, they are mighty and powerful in the hand of our high priest and elder brother. I'll stop quoting there for that section. You could read the rest of it on your own. But here Ryle is drawing our attention to the intercessory work of Christ. Do you view Christ in that way as, our, as one who intercedes for us? Um, he, is, he is the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the scriptures tell us. And what is uh, one of the primary roles of a priest under the Old Covenant, except to bring uh, the prayers of the people uh, to, to God on their behalf, to intercede for them. And that is what Christ does for us. Um, but He does so perfectly. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes much of that. He's saying that Christ is, is greater than Aaron and all the priests that descended from Him. Uh, because, well, for many reasons, one of them being because 
he has, he has earned an unending life. His priesthood will never come to an end. Um, there is no succession that descends from Christ because He will be our high priest forever and ever. He does not tire. He does not grow weary. But He lives to make intercession for us. The first full paragraph on page 16 uh, draws our attention to the Holy Spirit. There is the Holy Spirit ever ready to help our infirmities in prayer. It is one part of His special office to assist us in our endeavors to speak with God. We need not be cast down in distress by the fear of not knowing what to say. The Spirit will give us words if we seek His aid. The prayers of the Lord's people are the inspiration of the Lord's Spirit. The work of the Holy Ghost who dwells within them as the Spirit of grace and supplication. And so you can see the Trinitarian structure here to this section. We may come before God the Father boldly through faith in Christ the Son, our great High Priest, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray to God through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Ryle is correct. Um, there's a lot of encouragement to pray. The, the way to God has been opened up wide Every stone, every hindrance has been removed by God uh, through the work of Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. I go on now to page 17. There are exceeding, exceeding great and precious promises to those who pray. What did the Lord Jesus mean when we, He spoke such words as these? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. And so here Ryle is beginning to recount um, these promises that are found in God's Word that should encourage us to pray. Precious and very great promises like the one here found in Matthew chapter 7. He then quotes Matthew 21, verse 22. All things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer believing, ye shall receive. And then John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So I have to make a decision whether I'm going to go with the old English or, or uh, the, the new here. Uh, but these are wonderful passages, aren't they? Beautiful passages that remind us that God hears our prayers and that when we come to Him in prayer and pray according to His will, we will receive what we ask for. Many have misinterpreted those verses as if what they mean is that God is bound to do our bidding, you know, bound to comply to our will in prayer. That is not the meaning. Uh, the meaning instead is that as His children, we are to come to Him and pray according to His will. And He will answer our prayers. It may not be in the exact way that we expect. It might not be in the timing that we expect. But He hears us. And because He is infinitely wise and perfectly good, He will accomplish His purposes and they will be for our good in Christ Jesus. So by faith we have to believe these things. He also mentions that parable of the friend at midnight and the um, importunate widow. Is that how you say that word, anyone? I don't know. <laughs> um, he's talking about these passages where there is that friend that comes at midnight asking um, for supplies from his friend, and he persists, or the widow who is in need uh, and needs justice from the judge, and she persists. These are parables that encourage us to come to God uh, regularly and persistently in prayer and to ask Him uh, for what we need. These are all encouragements for us to pray. 
There are wonderful examples in Scripture of the power of prayer. Nothing seems to be too great, too hard, or too difficult for prayer to do. It has obtained things that seemed impossible and out of reach. It has won victories over fire, air, earth, and water. Prayer opened up the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven, etc., etc. Of course, it was not prayer that did it, but God who did it. And that is Ryle's point, that men of God in ages past have prayed to the Lord, and the Lord has done great things through this means of grace called prayer. What more can a man want to lead him to take any step in religion than the things I have just told him about prayer? I am here reading Ryle again at the bottom of page 18. What more could be done to make the path to the mercy seat easy and to remove all occasions of stumbling from the sinner's way? Surely if the devils in hell had such a door set open before them, they would leap for gladness and make the very pit ring with joy. But where will the man hide his head who, lasts to, at last, who neglects such glorious encouragements? What can possibly be said for the man who, after all, dies without prayer? Surely I may feel anxious that you should not be that man. Surely I may well ask, do you pray? And so he concludes this first section about the encouragement we find uh, to be men and women of prayer. What do you think about that, brothers and sisters? Do you have any thoughts uh, to offer up uh, concerning that first section in this part that we are considering today? You're saying, I'm still processing what I've just heard, and that's fine. Tom? Jesus prayed often, and if he prayed often, then we should especially pray often in his name. I do love to think about the doctrine of Christ. Um, he is the Son of God incarnate, and of course, in Jesus' humanity, he saw the need for prayer. And even though he was sinless, and although he was the person of the eternal Son of God, we see that he needed to commune with the Father and to draw upon God for strength. He needed to draw upon the Spirit of God for strength. It's a wonderful mystery, the doctrine of Christ and the Incarnation. But He, as the perfect man, showed us how we are to live, and His life was characterized by constant prayer. Yeah, a very good observation. He would often go away by Himself, which is a great encouragement too for me, you know, because you just get closer to God in those instances. Yes, He went away by Himself. This whole book is an encouragement to private prayer, isn't it? Um, and, and I think this is an encouragement that we need to not be so caught up with the, the busyness of life and the demands of life that we forget to commune with God. Uh, and Christ, yes, went off by Himself to pray. And we should follow His example in this as well. So there are lots of encouragements to pray. The way has been opened wide for us. Every hindrance has been removed. Um, in other words, there's really no excuse not to pray. But of course, we don't pray because our flesh gets in the way. Um, we have other things that consume our minds, that consume our time. And so we need to remedy that. Let's move on to the, let's see, fifth point in this big section, our second point for today. 
I ask whether you pray because diligence in prayer is the secret of eminent holiness. So if we wish to be holy before the Lord, we, we need to pray. Uh, that statement is found on page 19. Let me read the beginning of this section. Without controversy, there is a vast difference among true Christians. There is an immense interval between the foremost and the hindermost in the army of God. Uh, what Ryle is saying here is that amongst true Christians, there, there are some who have progressed very far in, in the faith and in holiness and in maturity. There are others who have not progressed so far uh, but are immature in the faith and who lack personal holiness. Uh, that is true. Uh, there is a gradient found within the church and amongst even the true people of God. They are all fighting the same good fight, but how much more valiantly some fight than others. They are all doing the, work, the Lord's work, but how much more some do than others. They are all light in the Lord, but how much more brightly some shine than others. They are all running the same race, but how much faster some get on than others. They all love the same Lord and Savior, but how much more some love Him than others. I ask any true Christian whether this is not the case. Are not these things so? Ryle goes on, on the bottom of page 19. There are some of the Lord's people who seem never able to get on from the time of their conversion. They are born again, but they remain babes all their lives. You hear them from them the same old experience. You remark in them the same want or lack of spiritual appetite, the same lack of interest in anything beyond their own little circle, which you remarked ten years ago. They are pilgrims indeed, but pilgrims like the Gibeonites of old. Their bread is always dry and moldy, their shoes always old, and their garments always rent and torn. I say this with sorrow and grief, but I ask any real Christian, is it not true? And so Ryle, as a pastor, is making this observation that within the church there are some who really seem to be excelling in the Lord and flourishing in the Lord, and others who seem to be languishing in the Lord. There are others of the Lord's people who seem to be always advancing. They grow like the grass after rain. They increase like Israel in Egypt. They press on like Gideon, though sometimes faint, yet always pursuing. They are ever adding grace to grace and faith to faith and strength to strength. Every time you meet them, their hearts seem larger and their spiritual stature taller and stronger. Every year they appear to see more and know more and believe more and feel more in their religion. They not only have good works to prove the reality of their faith, but they are zealous of them. They not only do well, but they are unwearied in, doing, in well-doing. They attempt great things and they do great things. When they fail, they try again, and when they fall, they are soon up again. And all this time they think themselves poor, unprofitable servants, and fancy they do nothing at all. These are those who make religion lovely and beautiful in the eyes of all. I'll stop quoting this section here because I think you get Ryle's point. He is calling us to, to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ, to pursue holiness in Christ Jesus. And of course, the uh, the, the crux of the matter here in this book, uh, Ryle's main point, is that peop these people will be found uh, to be praying people. I go down now to the middle of page 21 and quote Ryle. Now how can we account for the difference which I have just described? What is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 cases out of 20 arises from different habits about prayer, about private prayer. 
I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little, and those who are eminently holy pray much. And so this is his observation, and I think, I think Ryle is, is correct. Let me scan the remainder of this section here to see if there is anything else to read to you before asking you what you think about this section. Let me read this paragraph on the bottom of page 22. Look through the lives of the brightest and best of God's servants, whether in the Bible or not. See what is written of Moses and David and Daniel and Paul. Mark what is recorded of Luther and Bradford, the Reformers. Observe what is related of the private devotions of Whitfield and Cecil and Vin and Berkersteth and McShane. Tell me of one of all the godly fellowship of saints and martyrs who has not had this mark most prominently. He was a man of prayer. Depend upon it. Prayer is power. What do you think about this section? Linda is saying that for her, knowing the Bible is what really strengthened her prayer life. Um, you said it better than that, Linda, but that's my summary of it. Um, and I agree, there is, that, there is that relationship between knowing the Word of God and, and, and being able to pray well. Um, today, later, we will at, uh, look at Baptist Catechism 6, which asks what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Scriptures... Um, chiefly tell us what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so you could see the relationship there, even in our catechism, that first we learn all about God, but then we also learn about the duties that He requires of us, one of them being, after we come to faith in Christ, especially a prayer, and we go through the Lord's Prayer. And so I think, yes, there is that relationship. We need to grow in our knowledge of God, and that will enrich our prayer life. But of course, through our prayer life, we will also grow in our knowledge of God as we meditate upon Scripture prayerfully. Uh, there is that wonderful relationship. And of course, it's not hard to explain why this is. Because uh, in prayer, we speak to God. And when we open up the Scriptures to read them or to hear them read and preached, God speaks to us. And so there is that, that relationship there. God speaks to us through His Word, read and preached. And then we are invited to speak to God in prayer, and we have to do both things well. Listen well, and, and speak to God well in prayer in response. Wonderful. Any other thoughts? Let us go now to page 23 and read this uh, next section. I ask whether you pray because neglect of prayer is one great cause of backsliding and so this is kind of a, a negative observation, but Ryle as a minister is noticing that uh, those who backslide, those who, 
either stumble into sin or even fall away from the faith, uh, most likely you will find that they were not people of prayer. They were not communing with God in private prayer. There is such a thing as going back in religion, Ryle says, after making a good profession. Men may run well for a season, like the Galatians, and then turn aside after false teachers. Men may profess loudly while their feelings are warm, as Peter did, and then in the hour of trial deny their Lord. Men may lose their first love, as the Ephesians did. Men may cool down in their zeal to do good, like Mark, the companion of Paul. Men may follow an apostle for a season, and like Demas, go back to the world. All these things men may do. He goes on to say, It is a miserable thing to be a backslider. Of all unhappy things that can befall a man, I suppose it is the worst. And then the next paragraph, Ryle says, Now what is the cause of most backslidings? I believe as a general rule, one of the chief causes is neglect of private prayer. Uh, Notice he does not say this is the only cause, but he sees this as one of the chief causes, a neglect of private prayer. Of course, the secret history of falls will not be known till the last day. I can only give my opinion as a minister of Christ and a student of the heart. That opinion is, I repeat distinctly, that backsliding generally first begins with neglect of private prayer. Bibles read without prayer, sermons heard without prayer, marriages contracted without prayer, journeys undertaken without prayer, residence chosen without prayer, friendships formed without prayer, the daily act of private prayer itself hurried over or gone through without heart, these are the kind of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a tremendous fall. This is the process which forms the lingering lots, the unstable Samson's, the wife idolizing Solomon's, the inconsistent Asa's, the pliable Jehoshaphat's, the overcareful Martha's, of whom so many are to be found in the church of Christ. Often the simple history of such cases is this, they become careless about private prayer. That's beautifully stated, isn't it? Um, but it's also a, a sobering a sobering thought. Um, brothers and sisters, why do you think I'm bringing this uh, study to you? Having read this book myself, I said, I think the congregation needs to hear this. We need to be very careful about this, brothers and sisters, that we do not um, you, you know, uh, so love and maybe even pride ourselves in our public worship or in our sound doctrine uh, while lacking this, this real heart love and devotion to the Lord, coming before Him in private prayer. Our religion needs to be deeply personal, deeply real, so that we truly commune with God, uh, not only in the, 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 the assembly, how important it is that we commune with God together in the assembly, but if our religion is true, we will also go home and commune with God in private prayer. Let me read the concluding um, paragraph of this section. If you are a Christian indeed, I trust you will never be a backslider. But if you do not wish to be a backsliding Christian, remember the question I ask you, do you pray? Uh, So this is spoken like a, a true Calvinist, right? We do have this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. A true Christian, will they ever fall away, truly? No. They might stumble for a time, 
Peter being an example of that. But they will never fall away like Judas did. So we love the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. We do believe that if God has saved us, He will keep us to the end. Because Christ has has done it all. He has paid it all for us. Um, Our salvation is not uh, the result of our works in the beginning nor in the end. But in the Scriptures we find so many warnings against backsliding. And as those who have this high view of uh, the the sovereignty of God and salvation, uh, we see all of those warnings as being a means that God uses to preserve His people. So, When the true Christian hears the warnings in Scripture against falling into sin and falling away, when a true Christian hears these encouragements in the Scriptures to persevere in the faith and to not not look back, uh, the true Christian hears those warnings and and it resonates with them. It causes them to, to fear in a godly way. It causes them to pursue Christ more fervently. But when the one who is not a true Christian hears these warnings and these encouragements in the Scripture, it doesn't resonate with them in the same way, and they may fall back in time. And so it is right for a minister to, on the one hand, say, God will surely keep all who belong to Him, and then at the same time to look to the congregation and say, you had best persevere in the faith. You had best press on after Christ. Beware lest you fall away and come short of the rest that is yours in Christ Jesus. These two things are not contradictory. Uh, God uses them both. We are greatly encouraged to know that our salvation is secure in Christ Jesus, and yet it is right for us to be encouraged to press on in Christ. And of course, Ryle here is encouraging us to press on, especially in prayer. Any thoughts about that section? I ask whether you pray, because neglect of prayer is one great cause of backsliding. Jody. Yes. Yes, when we face temptation to cry out to God and, um, and to pray to Him. And of course the Lord's Prayer includes a portion about that very thing. Where we would ask the Lord to, to, to keep us from temptation. To, to not allow us to be tempted, uh, but rather to overcome it. Yes, good. Tom. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I've made the same observation that it, men sometimes struggle to pray more. And I don't know why that is. I don't want to act like men can be prideful and women aren't. <laughs> you know, pride is something common to all of us. Um, but I think in general, men, they, they tend to want to be more self-sufficient, you know, to just get to work and take care of business, maybe a little less relational than than women are. Um, these are stereotypes for a reason because there's some truth to them. And so, yes, I think that men sometimes in their pride and self-reliance struggle to pray as, as they should. I, 
I'll confess to you, brothers and sisters, I, I have to be very careful about this myself. Um, as a pastor, it is so easy for me, it is so tempting for me to wake up and to get into my office early and to immediately think about all of the things that need to be done, you know, as it pertains to pastoral ministry. And beyond that, all of the things that need to be done around my house, you know, the bills need to be paid, the house needs to be maintained, etc. There's just things, and, and I have this strong impulse to just do, to just get to work and to accomplish things. And I would say that that's probably true of a lot of the men in, in this room. You know, you wake up and you think, here's what I need to do today. And it is so tempting for me as a man to just run straight into that work and to begin to check things off my list, you know, to be productive. And so I have to discipline myself uh, to enter into prayer. As a Christian man, as a husband and father, as a pastor, I have to discipline myself to enter into prayer. And that it's almost sad to say it that way. Because you might look at me and say, but don't you just want to pray? Don't you just want to commune with God? And yes, I do. But I'm just being forthright with you and honest about how I'm wired and, what, and how I'm tempted. I want to just accomplish things. And so I need to be disciplined um, to, to read the Scriptures devotionally. Like what you were saying, Linda, the relationship between the, the Word of God and prayer, that's what I do first. I, I discipline myself to read the Scriptures devotionally, not for sermon preparation or for any other thing, but just to read God's Word. And it's only after sitting down with the Word of God in front of me that I, I feel prepared to then enter into prayer. And I have to discipline myself to not rush through that too, but to settle down and then to trust that the Lord is going to give me the time and the energy that I need to do all of the other things that He has called me to do. But without that resolve, um, I, I, will, I will confess to you, I think I would pray little. I think I would be consumed with the busyness of life. I would cry out to God here and there. I would pray here and there. But it would not be the kind of prayer that is pleasing to the Lord. A prayer marked by actual communion with God. Uh, thanks be to God. By His mercy and grace, once I do settle down, I feel warmed to pray. And I enjoy that time of communion with God. But uh, there is a great temptation just to be busy with the things of this life and to accomplish things. And... Uh, maybe that is something that men struggle with more. Maybe the women in the room are saying, no, it's the same thing for us. Um, I can't speak for you all, but uh, I hope that helps you, uh, all of you, and encourages you to be disciplined to pray and, and enter into prayer and then to commune with God once there. Any thoughts about that? Gloria. First thing you do when you get up in the morning or your day does not go right. And I think that's a very good practice to begin the day with prayer. You write your prayers out, Melissa? Yeah. I do the same thing. Because it helps my busy mind focus. And I also have a, a piece of paper beside me so that if some, some task intrudes, <laughs> I can just jot it down and return to focus. 
That's how distracted my mind can be, you know, with, with the things that need to be done. And so writing things out um, in both of those ways helps me a great deal. Any other thoughts? Becky? Okay, do you keep praying for the same thing over and over again, uh, even if there's no answer, or do you pray for it once and that's enough? Um, I guess I would want to follow up with you a little bit, maybe privately, and ask, well, what is that thing that you were praying for so that I could answer more, more directly? But I would say, in general, the answer is we are permitted to pray to God over and over again about the concerns of our hearts. I think it is very good for us to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, to be sure that we are surrendering ourselves to Him ultimately. But there are scripture texts that talk about being persistent in prayer and bringing these heart desires to the Lord over and over and over again. The Lord, uh, well, there was that judge who got annoyed uh, with the the widow who was so persistent. (laughs) Um, She would just come and nag him about uh, her need. And he finally gave in to her uh, because of her persistence. Of course, with these parables, we, we have to see that they sometimes also highlight the difference between God and man. And God is not like with that with us. He doesn't just finally have enough with us and give in to us. The point of the parable there is that it is good to be persistent in prayer with God and to bring Him our desires, even if it is the same thing again and again. Danny. Yeah, so my comment to you, Becky, about wanting to know what it is that you're praying for, you know, I think also of that example of Paul where he pled with the Lord to have that thorn in his flesh removed, and finally he received an answer from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, this thorn is going to remain, and, and so he, it, it seems he, he, he accepted that. So there is that kind of d- dynamic as well, where I think we have to have our hearts open to the idea that the Lord's will is that this situation remain. Um, you know, that, that's kind of a, a subjective thing there. And um, Paul, of course, was a unique fellow, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But um, th- these principles are found in Scripture. The need to be persistent, also the need to surrender ourselves to the Lord and to ask Him maybe, Lord, this is my heart. Is it my heart that needs to change in, the, in this regard? Um, now, if you're praying for the salvation of a loved one or something like that, it's good to be persistent um, and to pray for that over and over and over again. If it's that the Lord would change your circumstance, bring that desire to the Lord. But I think it's very important to also say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done and to surrender to His will ultimately. Yes. Jody. Yeah. Oh, well, you're welcome for sharing that. 
and um, I, I do hope it helps you. A question was asked last time, I think, about should we still pray even if we don't feel like it? If our prayer should be heartfelt, then what if there's no heart in it? Yes, you enter into prayer, you ask the Lord to forgive you and to change your heart and to persist in it. So um, I have those same struggles myself. Yeah. Gina, did you have something? Yes, praying out loud helps you. And that is good. Um, that is good. Sometimes when I'm writing my prayers, I, the thought does occur to me, this is kind of unnatural. You know, it's most natural just to cry out to God verbally with prayer. And, um, but I think these are all acceptable forms of prayer. God could hear our prayers if they are offered up to Him in silence. He could hear our prayers if they are silent but being put on paper. And then, of course, he hears our prayers when they are offered up to him in an audible way. That's good. Let's go through this last section. Page 26. This is the seventh point in this major section. I ask, lastly, whether you pray because prayer is one of the best means of happiness and contentment. What a good point to conclude with, you know, in this section. We live in a world where sorrow abounds. This has always been its state since sin came in. There cannot be sin without sorrow. And until sin is driven out from the world, it is vain for anyone to suppose he can escape sorrow. Some without doubt have a larger cup of sorrow to drink than others. But few are to be found who live long without sorrows or cares of one sort or another. Our bodies, our property, our families, our children, our relations, our servants, our friends, our neighbors, our worldly callings, each and all of these are fountains of care, sickness, deaths, losses, disappointments, partings, separations, ingratitude, slander, all these are common things. We cannot get through life without them. Some day or other they find us out. The, great, the greater are our affect, excuse me, the greater are our affections, the deeper are our afflictions, and the more we love, the more we have to weep. That's a beautiful thought and true. And what is the best means of cheerfulness in such a world as this? How shall we get through this valley of tears with least pain? I know no better means than the regular habitual practice of taking everything to God in prayer. This is the plain advice that the Bible gives both in the Old Testament and the New. What says the psalmist? Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm fifty fifteen. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 55, 22. What says the Apostle Paul? Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to, unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Uh, be careful for nothing means be anxious for nothing. Uh, what says the Apostle James? If any afflicted among you, let him pray. From here, Ryle goes on to talk about the saints in history, uh, as recorded in scriptures, in the scriptures who do this, also the saints from church history. Um, I skip over now for the sake of time, all the way to page 29, uh, the first full paragraph. Jesus can make those happy who trust him and call on him 
whatever be their outward condition. He can give them peace of heart in a prison, contentment in the midst of poverty, comfort in the midst, in the midst of bereavements, joy on the brink of the grave. There is a mighty fullness in Him for all His believing members, a fullness that is ready to be poured out on everyone that will ask in prayer. Oh, that men would understand that happiness does not depend on outward circumstances, but on the state of the heart. Can you remember the study we did on contentment? It continues to be one of my favorites. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, And I think that Ryle is right here to make this connection between contentment and the practice of prayer. Our hearts might be filled with lots of sorrow and angst, but when we come to God in prayer and when we enter in truly, it's amazing how the Lord does bring us peace. Uh, Those sorrows, those afflictions, those anxieties do tend to melt away as we come before the Lord and lay them before His feet. I think you all would agree with that. At the very end of this section, Ryle says, I want you to be happy. I know I cannot ask you, ask you a more useful question than this, do you pray? And now it is high time for me to bring this track to an end. I trust I have brought before you things that will be seriously considered. I heartily pray, God, that this condition may be blessed to your soul. Uh, and so, um, Brother J.C. Ryle does what many preachers do. He signals that the end of his tract or sermon is almost there, but really we are only halfway through. Um, So uh, this exhortation to pray has been given to us, but he gives parting words to those who do not pray and then some parting words to those who do pray but need to learn to pray uh, better, and we'll consider that over the next two Sundays. Any final thoughts from, from you all? It's a wonderful book. Yes, Jenna? That's good. Um, so it's not so much, Lord, I'm going to say it again because I'm wanting to force you to do what I think you should do, <laughs> as much as it is, Lord, I'm going to say it again because this is a true desire of my heart and I wish to lay it before your feet and walk away from the throne of grace at peace. I think that's a good observation. Our catechism asks the question, what is prayer? And the first line is, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. So just think about that. In prayer we are invited to come to God and to offer up our desires to Him. More is said, but I think that is a wonderful thing to emphasize. We are invited to come boldly before the throne of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. We're out of time. Tom, go ahead. Yep. I think you ought to plug the prayer guide. Oh yeah, I meant to do that. Yeah, We've begun to send out that prayer guide again. It's a massive document with really helpful little hyperlinks in it like a table of contents. You could use the thing however you'd like. Um, There's a section, current prayer needs, recently answered prayer um, needs, uh, uh, recently answered prayers, rather. And then there are some other things in there that I think would be really helpful to you. Um, The prayer reports from our local association churches. Uh, There's a missions prayer guide. If you click on links, it'll take you to it. Um, 
there's now a list of civil servants, you know, all the way from national to local. So we are commanded to pray for those who, who serve in the civil realm. We should do that. Um, at the very end, there's uh, just a, a, a membership a roster. And that thing is precious to me, um, that membership roster. Uh, and, and I do um, print it off regularly and pray through it regularly. It's neat to have the names of your brothers and sisters in Christ there, along with the names of their children, uh, so that you could pray for uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ too. Um, so use it how, however you wish, but there's a, a lot of material there. Um, certainly none of us can say, I can't think of anything to pray for. <laughs> there's plenty to pray for. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of prayer. Uh, we thank you for Christ, our salvation in him, but Lord, may we never forget that Christ came to reconcile sinners to you, O God. And so I pray that you would help us to enter into prayer and to commune with you, not only in the public place, but also in private. Um, Lord, if we do not have the desire to pray, give it to us. Lord, at least give us the discipline to sit and to begin to pray, and I pray that you would soon warm our hearts as we do, that we would enjoy you, O God, and give glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.